Amen. Amen. Wherever, wherever you are, wherever you find yourself today, uh, know that we're glad you're here with us, watching, listening in. If you live in the Tampa area, let me go ahead and say, uh, I would love, if I've never personally spoken with you, I would love to connect with you in some way. You can actually, I would love to hear from you. You could go online, find my, find my email. It's actually right here, uh, ehovis at newcitytpa.com. Um, I would love to, to hear, how, hear, hear about your story, uh, hear, be able to share with you what we're doing here at New City Church and how you can get more connected with us. But with that said, we're going to be diving right into Mark chapter 10, picking up uh, back where we were, where we, you know, b- before we fast forwarded to the death and resurrection the past two weeks. You know, I understand uh, this, this is certainly not the most typical way to do a sermon series, uh, jumping to the end of the book halfway through. Uh, but then again, we've known the, the ending of the story for over 2,000 years. So uh, I don't really feel so bad about it. Uh, it's kind of like uh, all the reruns we're watching of sports right now. Uh, we already know the ending. Um, anyway, over the next five weeks, though, we're going to be finishing up the book of Mark. Uh, we're we're going to be asking a slightly different question. The first half of the book of Mark asks the question, who is Jesus? Where the second half of the book of Mark asks the question, uh, what's his purpose? What did Jesus come to do? And as we know, Jesus came to die. Uh, but what we'll see is, is what, what did he accomplish in his death? Like, what did he accomplish? And, and one of the first things that we saw under this idea was, was back in chapter 9. We saw a few weeks ago that Jesus came to kill and destroy sin. It, our sin had to be dealt with. And today, we'll see one of the harder things in the Christian life that we have to wrestle with. And, and it's our relationship with our stuff. It, it's, it's a relationship with our resources, our money, our possessions. And, and before you check out or turn me off, uh, thinking that you know we're trying to increase our giving here, uh, that that's not where we're going with this. Uh, in fact, today has absolutely nothing to do with the church budget. Uh, I want to be loud and clear on this. God does not need our money. Uh, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the whole world in His hands. He doesn't need our money. To be very direct with you, uh, He actually wants far more than our money. Uh, he wants our entire life. And so that being said, our main idea for today is that Jesus demands lordship over our entire life, which uh, we will see it includes our resources. And so today in Mark 10, we're going to see an encounter with Jesus and a rich young man. And I think if we're honest, I think speaks to almost everybody watching or listening here today. Because uh, just in the fact of you, you being able to watch or listen to this on a smartphone or a TV uh, or a computer uh, or, or even just being in the United States makes us wealthy in comparison to the rest of the world. And I could give all, sort of, all sorts of statistics on this, uh, you know, on why we're all considered wealthy. But as we get into this story, I, think it, uh, I don't think it really matters if we're considered wealthy or not. Because it's not just about money, wealth, and possessions. It's about much more than that. It's about our hearts. It's about, our, it's about the things that we tie our lives to. The things that can rule us or lord over us, which is why our main idea today is Jesus wants lordship over our our life and it's not Jesus wants our wallet. But yet, with that said, Jesus knows it's very easy for us to tie our lives and be ruled by our wallets. Because our money and our bank account and our jobs, they, they represent some sort of stability or hard work. It represents our livelihood, how we're going to eat or put a roof over our head, which are all basic necessities of life. 
Uh, or for some, money represents the ability to have fun uh, and some sort of entertainment, being able to do, uh, to do the things we want to do and to have the things we want to have, which is not always bad. Again, let me make sure we understand this, that, that money is not evil. 1 Timothy 6.10 does not say uh, money is evil or, or the often, uh, maybe you've heard it, heard it quoted this way, money is the root of all evil, which is often misquoted. It doesn't say that. No, it says uh, the love of money is the root of all evils. Uh, money is not evil and having money is not evil. It's our love and our obsession with money. That's the problem. The issue is how we get tied to our money, how it becomes Lord over us. You know, something that uh, I suspect to be true, uh, especially following the last week. Last week, uh, we put the resurrection on trial. It was more apologetic by nature, more of a historical argument for Christianity. It was more head focused. Uh, and I would expect that most of us that call New City Church our home church would nod our head in agreement with a lot of what was said last week, agreeing mentally, and hopefully we were encouraged by it. Uh, But this week, for many of us, I think it's going to be a harder pill to swallow uh, than last week. This week is one of those gut checks. It's a reality check on somewhat on the seriousness of our faith. We can nod our head in agreement to the truth of the resurrection mentally, but our passage here today draws out more of a heart issue. Uh, it's, it's more of a heart issue than a head knowledge issue. You know, I, I have no facts actually to back this up. It's just a, it's a little bit of a hypothesis that I think. Um, I would suspect the ideas we see in today's, the ideas we see in today's passage keep more people from following Jesus than the truthfulness of the resurrection. Faith is not just a knowledge issue. It's not just a head issue. Faith uh, includes our heads, it includes our hearts, and it also includes our hands, the things that we do. And today, uh, we're seeing the issue of our hearts come rising up, bubbling up to the surface. This is one of those passages that shows why Christianity, uh, why lukewarm and half-hearted Christianity, it just doesn't work. Giving Jesus part of our life, it doesn't work. That's not what he demands. No, he demands all of it. Uh, Jesus didn't die for a part of our life. He died for our entire life. And because of that, he demands complete lordship of our life, complete and supreme power and rule over our life, which in a, which in a democratic culture that we live in, where majority often rules, where we vote and debate and share ideas and compromise for a common goal, this causes a lot of problems for many people. Our culture, generally speaking, uh, does not like this idea of lordship, being under the rule and reign of a single person, because it's often understood in light of evil, with corruption and bad intentions. But what makes following Jesus different is that Jesus, our king, uh, does not have any evil inside of him. This is very different. And follow me here, because if a king, if a king is all-knowing, Uh, He can see into the future and he's completely good and he lacks any evil. Being under that king's lordship, it's a best case scenario for us. And so what we'll see today is that Jesus wants lordship over our entire life. He wants our complete trust. And the benefits of Jesus' kingdom being under our good king's lordship, uh, the benefits are exponential. It's infinitely and eternally exponential. And we'll see all this through a story of Jesus and a rich young ruler. 
And just so you have a basic idea of where we're going today, uh, we're going to structure our time very simply, drawing from some of the language in our main idea. Number one, uh, Jesus knows our entire life. And number two, Jesus demands our entire life. And the first point, uh, we're going we're gonna to walk through the passage, make a few observations along the way, and we're going to try to wrap our head around most of the story, spending most of our time here in the first point. And then at the end, we're going to run towards this idea of Jesus' lordship, uh, Jesus demanding our entire life, wanting uh, us to have complete dependence on him. Uh, and it's not, it's not partial dependence. This is complete dependence and lordship. And so if you have your Bibles, follow, follow along with me in Mark 10, starting in verse 17. This is what it says. And as he was setting out on his journey, that being Jesus, a man ran up knelt, and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I don't know about you, but this doesn't happen to me very often. Someone running up and saying, how can I have eternal life? What must I do to have eternal life? You know, it seems like a church planner's dream. But if this were me, I may just jump right into the Romans road or go into the bridge diagram showing and explaining that if you believe and confess that Jesus is Lord, you can be saved, which is true and it's right and it's good and we should do this. But that's not what Jesus does because he wants to see, Jesus wants to see true, authentic faith and he sees right through this man. He wants to get at his heart. He doesn't want to just give him head knowledge, he wants to get to his heart. And so what does he do? As we'll see in a, question, uh, see in a second, uh, he challenges him. He questions his motives. Why? Because Jesus sees right through him. He knows the heart of this man. He knows everything about this man, which leads us to our first point today. Jesus knows our entire life. Just like Jesus called, could see through this man, he could also see through us. He knows us. He knows everything about us, our minds, our hearts, what we do. Jesus knew that this man wanted eternal life, but Jesus also knew that he, that he wanted it without having to take up his cross, just like Jesus taught a few chapters earlier. The man wanted eternal life, but he wanted eternal life without any sacrifice. And as we say often here at New City Church, Jesus doesn't just want our life for eternity. Jesus wants our life now. Jesus knows everything about us now. He sees our hearts, our intentions. He sees what we tie our lives to. And because he knows our entire life now, he wants to begin redeeming us now. We can't be the Lord of our life now and then hope to have Jesus as the Lord of our life for eternity because, listen, true faith, it requires both, both now and then, later. And then, and then look, at, look at Jesus' response in verse 18. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. If you remember back in verse 17, our first verse, uh, the man addressed Jesus as good teacher. And then Jesus follows up uh, here and says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. 
You know, this is, this is fascinating to me. Uh, this man asks, he asks, how can I have eternal life? This is a central question to the entire Bible. And yet, Jesus doesn't answer that question. But rather, Jesus asks him why he called him a, a good teacher, which it seems like Jesus is being a politician here, completely dodging the question. But no, Jesus isn't dodging the question. He's answering in layers because he knows all the layers of this man's heart. You know, Tim, Kelly, Tim Keller uh, was really helpful for this, helpful for me on this. Except he used an illustration on candy. Uh, I'm going to change it a bit because this past week I, f- I started a family quarantine activity uh, where we're, gro- we're now growing sunflower seeds that grow up to 16 feet tall. Pretty excited about it. We'll see what happens. Uh, so here's my best stab at it. We often want to think of Jesus' teachings as gentle uh, and sweet, kind of like someone handing us a bouquet of flowers and immediately, uh, to be immediately enjoyed, giving us, giving us the warm and fuzzies. But no, Jesus' love and teaching in this moment is more like uh, handing someone a shovel, a bag of dirt, and a pack of seeds for them to go out back and plant a bed of flowers. Uh, it's not super fun at first. Uh, it's hard work, and it's not exciting, very exciting to receive. But in the long run, this is the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, and so Jesus isn't dodging the question. He, he's metaphorically speaking, uh, giving the man a bag of dirt in the moment. So while we're, while we're wondering, uh, what is he doing here? But something that we need to understand, something that we need to get is that uh, during this time, Jews typically only referred to God as good. Very rarely did, did they ever call teachers good. And so Jesus here is drawing his attention to what he believes. Why? Because Jesus knows what he believes. Possibly he's drawing his attention to him believing in Jesus' divinity, having him question it, essentially saying, are you sure you're ready to call me good? Do you really really believe that I'm good? Which appears to be a rhetorical question because Jesus doesn't even give him time to answer. Instead, he says in verse 19, I guess we could say now he's he's handing him a pack of seeds, so to speak. Uh, He says, you know the commandments. Showing that Jesus knows knows what this man knows, knowing that he knew the commandments and then As we saw, Jesus proceeds to list off several of them. And then the man said back, I think this is rather surprisingly, it seems to to be a bit prideful in my opinion. Uh, He says in verse 20, uh, this time he's addressing Jesus as teacher only. He said, I've kept, he said, teacher, I've kept all of them from my youth. We see here, we see this, we see his perception uh, the, the perception has of, this, of himself. He, sees that he, he thinks he's a good man. He appears to be morally upright. He's not a thief. He's not a liar. He's not a murderer or an adulterer. He honors his parents. And in this moment, looking back to Jesus, you know, just thinking back to how Jesus dealt with the Pharisees, you would think that Jesus in this moment would show him his depravity, maybe, uh, maybe even remind him of some of the lies or maybe the adultery in his mind if they existed. There, there are a lot of things Jesus could have said to him, correcting him in his pride, showing him his sinfulness, how, tr- how, he, uh, has, how he truly hasn't kept all of the commandments, he probably could have called out the commandment of do not covet. But that's not what he did. You know, quite possibly, this man, possibly he was, as the apostle Paul said of himself in Philippians 3.6, Paul said he, he obeyed the law without fault. He was, Paul said he was blameless according to the law. 
But as a follower of Jesus, Paul, Paul knew that he wasn't truly blameless, but according to the law, uh, before following Jesus, he was thought of to be blameless. We don't know if this is true of this man. It doesn't, doesn't say. But what we do know is that Jesus, what, what, what Jesus said back to him. He didn't, and he didn't address his obedience to the law. No, he addresses a different issue, a deeper issue that Jesus saw, that Jesus knew. In verse 21, it says, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. What I think is interesting here is it says Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus withholds criticism of his allegiance to the law, but yet he puts his finger on a bigger problem, but he does it in love. You know, in love, Jesus tells this man, okay, go sell everything you have and follow me. And as we'll see, it didn't feel like love to the man. I guess we could say uh, he wanted a bouquet of flowers, but instead, in love, Jesus gave him a shovel, a bag of dirt, and a pack of seeds so he could go plant a bed of flowers that would last. Uh, Men, uh, let me just say, don't do this on Valentine's Day uh, or uh, or Mother's Day, uh, because as we'll see, it didn't go very well for this guy, and I don't think it will go very well for you either. Uh, So verse 22 says, uh, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Let's just think about this. This man, uh, he seemed to be searching. The man started off by running to Jesus. He was probably uh, excited. It says he knelt before him, showing honor, and asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And then, within a matter of minutes, uh, he's walking away, disheartened and sorrowful, and he did not repent and follow Jesus. Why? Because he didn't want to give up his stuff. He didn't want to give up his possessions because they were great, because he was a prosperous man. This man desired money and material wealth more than he desired Jesus. He was a seeking man. He was a man that was searching for answers. He was searching for Jesus, but Jesus snuffed out a major problem in his life. He didn't want complete lordship. He wanted to rule his own life. He wanted to manage his own stuff. He wanted to be prosperous. He wanted to be a good citizen. And he wanted to have a little Jesus on the side. But that was not in the cards for Jesus. Because following Jesus, following Jesus requires both submission and sacrifice. Either Jesus rules our lives or we rule our lives. There's no such thing as being a co-ruler. You can't have two kings on the same throne. Either Jesus is king of our life or we are the king of our life. And if Jesus is the king of our life, whatever he says, do. If he says, jump, we say, how high? If he says, sell, of our, sell all of our stuff, we sell all of our stuff. If he calls us to give generously, we give generously. This man want, wanted what most people in our culture want which are the blessings of heaven and eternal life, a sense of fire insurance, escaping hell, and a a security of the unknown after this life. He wanted to be in Jesus' eternal kingdom later, but he didn't want to be ruled by it now, which as we see, it was a sign of unbelief. And in this moment, Jesus is snuffing out his idolatry of wealth he wasn't, because he wasn't willing to give it up. He was snuffing out what this man was tied to, and, and what we have to understand is that this was a really big deal for this man. This was a major sacrifice for him. 
This would be like Jesus telling someone to, to sell their family business or to give up their, their, their 401k. I think we can, we can agree that this was a big deal. This, this was this man's cost to following Jesus. Now, something we need to know here uh, is that every, every Christian is not asked ask to sell everything they own and give to the poor. Uh, but I do think that every Christian should certainly be willing um, this is a lordship issue in this specific man's life. This is not a prescriptive model for every Christian. However, if God calls us to do this, then we do it. Because God wants complete lordship over our life. You know, I, I think for most who are checking Christianity out, this concept probably feels pretty radical. The idea that Jesus owns our entire life, including our possessions and money, it's a radical idea that if God calls us to sell everything, that we should sell everything. If you, if you find this difficult, if you think this is a little difficult to grasp, uh, know that you're not alone. As you'll see in a second, Jesus understands the difficulty of this. He understands the weight of what he's asking the weight of selling your family business, your sole source of income, and in turn, walking into poverty. Or, or the weight of selling off and giving away your 401k to the poor that you worked your entire life for. Let's just stop and think about this for a second. If Jesus told a poor person with very little to sell everything they had and follow him to find themselves completely dependent on Jesus to the poor person, you know, what do they have to lose? Possibly thinking, well, I, I can't help myself financially, so, so maybe this man can help me. To a wealthy person who is financially independent, who's accumulated a lot of possessions, a house, a car, a 401k, if Jesus said, give all of that up and follow me, that person would really need to count the cost and consider the value. Thinking, you know, I can have my, I can have my possessions, what I can see, or I can follow the man uh, and have, or, or I can follow this man and have what I cannot see. If we, if we do not understand the value of Jesus in this scenario, then keeping our, our, our possessions, keeping our possessions seems like the obvious choice. Or maybe, you know, maybe like this man, we can, we can still value Jesus. Uh, but if we value our possessions more, then again, our choice is, keeping, is to keep our possessions. This man didn't want to have to choose. He didn't want to have to choose between keeping his, his possessions and following Jesus. But Jesus made him choose, and it revealed to this man, and revealed to Jesus and everyone looking in, it revealed what he valued more. And so, and so just stop and think. If Jesus put these two choices in front of you, uh, what would you do? Right? Would, the choice, would the choice be easy, or, or would it be a hard one? How we think about this, how we, how we respond to this may reveal something to us about our faith, how we are, are maybe too tied to our possessions. Jesus knew this was hard for this man. And he also knows how easy it is for our hearts, how easy it is for us to get tied to our money, which is why Jesus says what he says next in verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his word, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. 
Jesus acknowledges the challenge of a wealthy person to follow Jesus. For a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God, as it says in verse 23. And, then, and not just a wealthy person, but he says it again. He talks about it more generically in verse 24, and then he illustrates it in verse 25. He essentially is saying in verse 25, it's impossible for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. You know, some have said, you know, maybe uh, there was something called a needle uh, that, that camels had to, t- had to kind of walk very carefully through in the city. Uh, but most, most would agree this is, this is not right. That's just not right. No, he's saying it's impossible. Everything in this passage leans towards the impossible nature of this illustration. You know, this is, this is a very, very simple illustration, I think. Uh, what we see in verse 25, it's so simple, I think my three-year-old can understand it. If I took the eye of a needle, uh, a very small sewing needle, and then pointed to a life-size camel, Right? And ask, uh, you know, and, and, and said, hey, can that camel right there, can that camel go through this tiny little hole, this eye of this needle? I think she would think it was rather funny. Right? And actually, to test it out this week, I took, I took off my wedding ring, which is, which is larger than the eye of a needle, uh, and asked my kids if they thought our dog, which is much smaller than a, life si- than a, than a camel, uh, if they thought it could fit, you know, if, if, if our dog could get through my wedding ring. And the older two just looked at me completely confused, while the three, my three-year-old thought it was completely hilarious uh, because it was clearly outrageous. It was an impossible claim. All that to say, Jesus said it's impossible. And, and can you imagine what the disciples' response would have been here? Because this, this claim seemed a bit off. They didn't, they didn't get it. And so uh, in verse 26, it says, And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Who can be saved? They're asking the simple question. If this is true, if this is true, that it's impossible, then who can be saved? Possibly thinking, can we be saved? Are we considered wealthy? If this were me, I'd be thinking, well, where, where is the line for wealth? Uh, that would be good to know. You know, is the top 50% of the world, uh, is that where the line of wealth is? You know, which all of us listening or watching would f- probably fall under that. You know, you know my family got a check uh, from the government, from the stimulus package this past week. Does that mean uh, I'm not wealthy? Am, am I safe? Uh, maybe they were thinking so. Uh, is wealth the determining factor for salvation? If that's true, uh, is there anything else like this? You know, it says in verse 26, it says they were exceedingly astonished. This was a shocking statement. This, this statement, it shook them. And then Jesus comes full circle and Jesus starts to ease their panic in verse 27. And it says, uh, Jesus looked at them and says, and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Again, Jesus is affirming the impossible nature of the camel and the needle saying, saying, yes, it is impossible for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God in their own power. But it's not impossible with God. In fact, there's, there are many examples uh, in the Bible of wealthy people following Jesus. Right, we see Zacchaeus. We see a few weeks ago, we saw Joseph of Arimathea right, at the burial of Jesus. where Jesus, and he was, Jesus was buried in this wealthy man's tomb. We, we also know of many others in the Bible. And at first glance, you know, this, this seems uh, to be, this whole teaching here seems to be primarily a teaching on possessions and wealth. 
which in fact it is. And so there, there are a few things we're going to have to wrestle with in those regards when it comes to possession and wealth, uh, and, and we'll get to those. But even more than that, Jesus is, teaching, uh, Je- Jesus is teaching his disciples and this man about lordship, about depending on Jesus and, and not depending on our idols. You know, earlier in chapter 9, Jesus put a small, uh, a very small child, if you remember, a dependent, uh, an example of a dependent child uh, on display as a model for faith. How children, uh, the, the, the dependence that a small child has, that's the model for faith, showing that the kingdom of God is based on dependence. And he's continuing with that idea here, but he's just putting a little bit more teeth on it. And how, uh, reiterating how, how dependence is the key to God's kingdom. All the while, he's removing and highlighting the things that we, uh, we depend on often more than Jesus. In this man, he found great dependence on his wealth. Jesus was highlighting how this man found his identity and his satisfaction and his comfort uh, and his comfort in his wealth and possessions, which as we have said, this is very easy to do because how do we eat, right? We take our money and we go and buy groceries. How do we, how do we put roof, a roof over our head? We take our money and we pay our mortgage and we pay our rent. How do we buy clothes for our kids uh, that just, don't seem to stop growing. Uh, we do it with our money. You know, how do, we, how do we have fun with our friends? Well, we can't right now uh, because we're in quarantine. But typically, we go to fun restaurants with our money. The point is, our money can easily become our safety net. Our, our money can easily become our source of dependence. No matter where you are on the spectrum of wealth, whether you have a little or whether you have an abundance, whether you have a lot of wealth, here are a few diagnostic questions to determine if money or possessions may be an idol in our life. You know, this is, this, is not, these are, this is not law. These questions are just diagnostic questions. There's something to think about. First, where, what do you, where do you find yourself thinking about? Uh, or daydreaming about? Are you, are you constantly thinking about how you can uh, get more money? Or, or are you constantly thinking about the next thing you can buy? You know, what do your spending habits look like? You know, oftentimes if we look at our checkbook or if we look at our bank account, uh, they'll, they'll give a window into our idols. Or here's a, more, here's a more direct question. How does our fun money, how does it compare to the way we give? And again, I'm, I'm not bringing this up so that we can uh, increase our giving here. This has absolutely nothing to do with New City Church. Because, listen, Christian, Christians are called to give generously. Generosity is a mark of maturity in the Christian life. And if this is hard for us to do, it's something we need to wrestle with and consider. You know, the next question you know, just to, to, diagnose, to diagnose ourselves, to think about it, to, to consider, are we emotional with our money? Does it cause anger? Does our, does our money cause stress? Is there a sense or possibly a sense of euphoria or excitement that, that comes when we get more money? Again, again, these questions aren't perfect. They're just diagnostic questions for us to consider, to think about, because money can be idolized as stability and provision. Or it can also be idolized as a means to, to get more material, more material things, more stuff. Money is a topic that we must deal with and come face to face with. And as, as we see in this story, Jesus knows this. Jesus knows that we have to deal with this. And did you know that for every one time Jesus warns about sex and romance, about building our lives on them. Topics uh, that are in our church culture today, you know, typically draws a large crowd. 
For every one time Jesus warns against those topics, Jesus warns us 10 times about money. Money, because why? Because money matters. The way we deal with it matters. The way we, the way we steward our money matters. How we give it away, it all matters. You know, there's, there's something to be said, I think, about uh, systematic giving, the discipline of regular and consistent giving. Every time our family uh, gives to New City Church, you know, we, I, we get, a, I get an email notification of our recurring giving uh, that we do online. It's a simple reminder for us, for our family, for me, that, that our wallet, that my wallet is not my wallet. You know, everything, everything we have has been entrusted to us. It's, it's been entrusted to us to steward and to steward well. And honestly, sometimes, sometimes when we see that money leave our bank account, it's really hard thinking, oh, oh, we could have, we could have really used that money this month. But it's a simple reminder that it's just a number that a number in our bank account that is not our provider. The Lord has entrusted this money to us to steward well. And a simple tithe is a systematic blessing in our life, reminding us that God is our provider. Jesus knows uh, the struggle we have with money. And we must know, we must remember that he wants, he wants to take the burden out of our hands and he wants to place the burden back into his hands. Not, listen, not allowing God to be the Lord of our wallet is an indictment of distrust. It is. The church culture traditionally has taken very seriously, as we've said, sex and romance, but we need to be just as serious, if not far more serious, about how our heart gets tied to our money. And I say this not because we want you to give. Again, that is not the issue here. But what I do know to be true is that giving is a systematic way to untie our hearts, our hearts to our money. And to further this idea, giving for gospel advancement, it, it unties our hearts to the world and it ties our hearts to the things of God, it ties our hearts uh, to his mission. You know, if you don't want to give to New City Church, that's fine. Give somewhere else. Give to the poor, just like Jesus called this man to do in the story. Again, it has nothing to do with our church. This has absolutely nothing to do with our budget. It has everything to do with our hearts. Generosity uh, is a heart and gospel issue. Generosity is not a church budget issue. Our money and resources uh, are not our stability. Our possessions are not our source of hope and happiness. And a number in our bank account is not our provider. God is our provider, our stability, and our source of hope and happiness. Nothing else can be placed where only God deserves to be placed. We must take warning today, seeing where our hearts lie with our money. And as we've said, this story is not just a money and possession, about money and possessions. It's about more, far more than that. It's about idolatry and dependence. This story is about lordship. This story is about uh, what is ruling this man's life. And it's forcing us to ask the same question. What is ruling our life? It's causing us to ask the question, what are we dependent on? And as we know, our view of money and possessions are a small window to our idols and, to our, and, and a window into our source of dependence. You know, we could change this story to a number of different things and the ideas uh, would, be this, would still be true. 
Instead of Jesus asking this man to give up his wealth and possessions, he could have also said, give up your job, uh, give up your reputation, your resume, your education, give up your friends, give up your health, your diet, your scale, your gym, your sports, give up ESPN, give up entertainment, give up going out, which uh, if we're honest here, it sounds a bit too much like quarantine, uh, but, but you get the idea. Jesus demands complete allegiance and devotion in every corner of our life. Leading us to our second uh, and last point, Jesus demands our entire life. And a question I think that may be lingering here uh, as we wrestle with a hard topic like this is why would we say Jesus demands our entire life? Why, Why couldn't this man have both his wealth and follow Jesus? Well, because like I've said, it's not about his wealth. It's about lordship. Uh, When we think about being under the lordship of Jesus, Jesus being our ruler, our master, anything else that fights for that position as lord or master is taking away from the value of the master. Anything that is trying to be co-master or co-king with Jesus is devaluing Jesus. It's essentially saying that Jesus is not good enough. For example, if my wife told me that, hey, hey Eric, I, I love you. Uh, you know, I just, I would just, I want another husband, just a second one. I want to keep you, but I want, a, I want a second husband. I think we can agree that I would be very offended. Like, I would, this would not be good. And that's, that's similar to what's happening here. God wants our soul, allegiance, and devotion because he's God. And anything short of that, it undermines God. <laughs> but not only that, we said at the beginning of our time that the second half of the book of Mark is asking the question, what's Jesus' purpose? What's Jesus' purpose? And we know that as we saw uh, the past two weeks from the end of Mark, we know that, like, like we said, Jesus came to die. And in this story, we see that Jesus came to die for our complete devotion. Jesus came to to die for our complete devotion so he could have our soul allegiance. When Jesus came down to earth, uh, he left heaven. He left the riches of heaven and he was born as a baby and he lived a sinless life. Jesus had the power of God at his disposal. And then he died a criminal's death on a cross and he rose from the dead. Jesus came down to earth. He came down on a rescue mission to save us, not just to partially save us. Jesus came to fully save us, completely save us. We're not partially washed clean by the blood of Jesus. We're fully washed clean by the blood of Jesus. God doesn't want to partially redeem us. God wants to fully redeem us, which includes our entire life, every area of our life, every hidden corner of our life, God came to redeem. This is a great, unbelievable truth because the world was broken. It was impoverished by sin while Jesus was with God. You know, he was with God in the riches of God's kingdom. And yet Jesus traded the riches of the kingdom to take on the poverty of the world so that we might be rich. God didn't come to make us middle class. No, he came to make us rich, to make us spiritually rich and spiritually wealthy, to sit at the right hand of God the Father with the resources of God's kingdom at our disposal. Any possessions we have that God asks us to give away or to sell away from an investment perspective, it's a no-brainer. We trade our possessions Uh, We give them away and we get the riches of God's kingdom. 
We trade in our poor in comparisons and possessions that we depend on, and God gives us the kingdom. This is a privilege. This is a privilege to depend on the king and depend on the kingdom. This is exactly what Paul in 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says. It says, he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Are we getting this? Listen, Jesus was the rich man in the story. He upheld the law perfectly, except the greatest difference, which is a massive difference, is that Jesus was willing to sacrifice everything where the man in the story wasn't. Jesus gave up all of his riches and he gave it to the poor, which is us. He gave all of his riches to us. Jesus gave up his entire life so that we may become rich. He does, how does a rich man enter the kingdom of God? It's impossible. Just like it's impossible for a man to rise from the dead, but as we saw from last week, Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is living and active. And if Jesus can rise from the dead, he can use that same power to take a person who is running after wealth, change their life, and miraculously have them run after Jesus. If you are listening or watching, and if you have any sort of material wealth, which is, uh, as we've said, which is most of us who are listening, if not all of us who are listening and watching, and if you are following Jesus, consider this a miracle and grace in your life that God has shown in your life. It was not your wealth that saved you. No, it was the power of God that saved you. I want to I close by looking at the last few verses. Um, look, look with me starting in verse 28. Uh, Peter, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mo- mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. There's, there's so much to be said here that uh, we just don't have time for. But w- when I read these verses, just thinking about our church, uh, New City Church specifically, and the great sacrifices that people have made, uh, se- selling houses to move here, uh, leave, selling everything, selling some companies, uh, many of our possessions, leaving brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, friends, and good jobs knowing that it was done, as verse 29 says, doing this for Jesus' sake and for the sake of the gospel. Something that we can't miss here is that there is a promise of blessing in verse 30. It says, of receiving a hundredfold. And now, and in the age to come. And I I have no clue what this means for each person. But what seems to be clear is that Jesus has made a promise of blessing. There's a blessing of the riches of God's kingdom. And I don't want to speak into this too much uh, or overspeak here because there's a lot that can be mistaught here. Uh, and a lot of, historically, this has been used to manipulate giving. Uh, but what I can say in confidence from this is that your sacrifices, your struggles, they do not go they do not go unnoticed by God. It's 
Something that I know to be true is that you cannot outgive God. We cannot outgive God. We cannot outsacrifice God. God gave up the entire kingdom. He gave up his son. The economy of God is the best and most certain economy that we could ever be involved in. The ROI of God's kingdom is eternally exponential. The rewards are great and eternal. But the buy-in, the investment to get into it, God asks for our entire life. Every area of our life, God asks us for complete dependence on him. God asks for complete faith. Listen, if you, if you have not put your faith in Jesus today, you can do that right now. You can put your faith in Jesus. You can buy into the kingdom by putting your faith in Jesus right now. And I pray that you would because God's kingdom, it's far greater than any kingdom we could try to build or accumulate here on earth. God's kingdom is far greater than that. New City Church, Jesus, Jesus gave up his entire life for us. And our response should be giving up our entire life back to him. Listen, we can't, we can't outgive God. Uh, if we've trusted in Jesus, uh, we're brought into God's kingdom. And for that, for bring, being brought into God's kingdom, for that we can rejoice. Let's pray. Father, Father we can rejoice today that, uh, that you are uh, the king of the universe, that you gave us uh, your son, that you, uh, you purchased us, you bought us by the blood of Jesus, that we uh, can be known by God. Uh, that you can, uh, you can love us and you can be with us. Father, we know that the economy of God uh, is far greater than any possessions we could have here on earth. But Father, I pray that we would untie uh, our hearts. We would untie our lives to what uh, is in this world and we would tie our hearts to what is in heaven. God, I, I pray for those that are listening or watching that whatever they are dealing with, whatever their hearts are tied to, God, I pray and I ask and I beg and I plead that you would untie their hearts to what uh, is fleeting in this world and they would tie it to a firm foundation in Jesus Christ. We ask this all in Jesus' name.